Welcome everybody to the Called Podcast from First Fisherman Media. I'm here again on location in Paris uh, at the wonderful convent of the Religious of the Assumption with uh, the sister who invited me here, was so kind to do so, Sister Claire. Sister, welcome. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm not living here. We're both living in the States usually. <laughs> That's right, uh, Philadelphia. But this is our uh, mother house in Paris. Wonderful. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, your story and uh, your vocation story. But first, before we do, I'll start us in prayer. Sister asked if I actually would begin us in prayer. So I would say, uh, come Holy Spirit, please bless our time together that we may uh, bring a message of hope and of God's love to anybody who's listening, anybody who's discerning what they should be doing in this life, anybody who's discerning uh, their call uh, to you. And so um, I pray this in your name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, Sister, welcome. Um, uh, I'd love to uh, hear a little bit about your story. The The idea of the podcast, as you know, is that we are attempting to get um, to try to inspire people, perhaps, um, to a vocation in the church. Maybe somebody would listen and could relate to the journey that you've had to your religious vocation and also just as a way to get to know our religious. Um, so maybe uh, start at the beginning. Where were you born? And tell us a little bit about your background. I was born in New York, Manhattan. And uh, Where in Manhattan? I didn't know that. Yeah, well, my family had an apartment in Manhattan. My father had a farm in New Jersey. And uh, so all of us were born in Manhattan. Uh, I, I get used to saying that because I lived a long time in Europe and people knew New York. When I said I was born in New York, they could relate to that, whereas Philadelphia was a little farther away for them and New Jersey was uh, completely unknown. So uh, I was, uh, I'm was i a convert. I uh, was born into to a Christian family, but my parents were not practicing. And uh, as a matter of fact, my very, very Protestant side of the family. My father's side of the family thought it was pretty horrible to be a Catholic. Uh, they had many, many prejudices against Catholicism. But my sister and I had gone looking for a church, and uh, the two of us uh, had ended up in the Catholic Church. Uh, if telling about my vocation, I find it a rather unusual vocation story. Uh, perhaps not very inspiring. So I'm really going to start at the end in the sense that uh, I always felt a little uh, self-conscious and insecure in the sense that the other people in the religious life seem to have had a vocation for a very long time. Most of them, of course, came from Catholic families. They had wanted to be religious when they were younger. At least they they had thought about it. Perhaps they'd forgotten about it for a while, but then uh, they they could trace their vocation uh, usually to childhood or to a very young age, which was not my case. Uh, so I felt a little insecure about it. And um, I, I made a retreat once. And during that retreat, I remembered something that told me about my the origin, the real origin of my vocation. As I said, I was not a Catholic. My, my, no one in my family was a Catholic at the time. And uh, 
my mother was invited by someone uh, to make a retreat, to go to a Catholic retreat house. And my mother never went anywhere without bringing gifts back to the children, back to the three of us. So uh, my mother, when she came back from this retreat, brought me a little book about saints. There were 10 women saints in this book. And uh, I was rather precocious. I had learned to read. And there was the story of St. Cecilia. And St. Cecilia uh, was... uh, to marry a, a pagan, and and so she she told him that uh, I have an angel, and uh, they said that at her at her wedding she was sing- singing to Christ in her heart, and uh, in the end of the story of Saint Cecilia, both she and her um, to be husband that was never uh, never a consecrated marriage were martyrs. Uh, and uh, Saint uh, Cecilia also, because she was singing to, to Christ in her heart, became the uh, patroness of music. And so those things stayed with me. And when I looked back, I realized I was only six years old when my mother brought that little book. And I was very impressed by Cecilia. And I was too young to understand anything about virginity but I could understand about giving oneself totally to Christ and to God. And uh, so then I, I had the satisfaction of knowing that my vocation went way back. Uh, but coming to the actual time of my vocation, I considered myself very worldly. Uh, and I guess other people did because when we had retreats uh, at the high school, uh, they would talk to the, some of the girls about vocation. The sisters would talk to them or the priests would. No one ever talked to me. No one ever asked me about a vocation. Uh, and I, though, uh, would think about it. Um, but my reasoning was rather strange. I just thought, I only have one life. It's uh, not very long. And what's the best thing I can do with my life? And I thought, well, the best thing I can do with my life is to to give it to God and to, and to uh, serve uh, God and uh, to prepare myself for heaven. And so uh, I was going to Mass every day. I must have been a very strange person and a very divided person because I prayed, I went to Mass, and on the other hand, I loved theater and, and music and, and pretty clothes and to wear my mother's diamonds when I was older and so forth. So I was, um, I didn't have any idea of a vocation in one sense, but when there were retreats, I would talk to the priest uh, who was giving the retreat about vocation, and he would say to me, I think they all had the same questions, he would ask me, have you thought about it before? And I would say, oh yes, I put a towel on my head to see what I would look like in a habit, (laughs) and, then he would say, well, does the life attract you? And I'd say, no, not at all. <laughs> and, uh, and it was funny because my idea of becoming a, a religious was just death. I mean, it was the end of everything that I, that I thought was uh, good and fun and worthwhile and so forth in this life. I, I actu- actually, uh, even up, up until the time when I entered, 
I just uh, imagined you never ate again, which of course is crazy. <laughs> uh, so one day though, I did make a retreat. And, no, it wasn't a retreat, I take that back. Uh, it was a, a question. I just went to a priest with a question. I was very distressed about um, poverty. For, and some, for some reason I had an attraction to India uh, I imagined that I would marry somebody and then I would be able to serve the poor. I would have that time. And uh, and the, it was a time when the Umane Vitae came out. And uh, I was troubled by the idea of uh, uh, not being uh, able to use birth control. And I went to ask this priest, of, you know, about India and and the overpopulation in India and the uh, church's teaching on birth control. Well, I guess, I don't know what answer he gave me. I can't remember that because at the end of the conversation, he looked at me and said, you know, you have a vocation. Uh, vocation in, that, in those days meant vocation to the religious life. And uh, I just remember I put my head in my hands uh, my, and... Uh, uh, and then when I left, I, I think I was, I was happy and distressed at the same time. And it, there was a dance that night. And fortunately, I was with someone I knew very well because I was completely distracted and was only thinking about what this priest had said. And uh, so then I, uh, I, I think I went and spoke to the superior uh, of the... Uh, of the sisters, of the, was the sisters of the Assumption that I that I knew well, and uh, she said, "Don't worry." I I said, "I I don't know what my parents will say," and she said, "Oh, don't worry. I, I've helped other girls to run away," uh, which struck me very strange, and uh, my mother was completely surprised. My my father, as I say, my family was basically Christian, and my father's response was uh, respect for the will of God. If that's what you think God wants, wants of you, and uh, and so I, th I was uh, a senior in high school because in my time, uh, that was a usual time for uh, young girls to enter the convent, and uh, so I was very very torn. I had um, enrolled in college. I had already made a down payment on my room, so I thought I better get this over with. I probably don't have a vocation. They'll probably put me out. Uh, someone told me that uh, one person said you're so proud you wouldn't come out if you didn't if you didn't have a vocation. Another person said that the sisters will be having cocktail parties if you stay, and. Um, so I had no I, I just thought I, I have to respond and see if I have a vocation. So I thought I'll, I'll get this over with as soon as possible. I did not, um, I did not uh, cancel my, my uh, enrollment in college. And uh, I went, I thought I'll go in the summer and they'll probably put me out and then I'll just go on to college. So I entered in the heat of summer and uh, found that I was in the right place and stayed forever. <laughs> Did you know that immediately or was it within a few days or was it you walked in and it was just sort of no, kind it of was immediate? No, no. In the beginning, uh, as I say, it was very, very hot. 
uh, I can it was it was August, and uh, and one thing was that I was still I was still in lay clothes, and the sisters afterwards teased me because I had what was a charm bracelet that was a bracelet with a lot of little trinkets hanging on it, and apparently it made noise in the in the corridors, and everybody knew when I was around. Um, so I I found it I found it very very difficult. Uh, I remember making the way of the cross and the and the marble was so you know I wanted to just put my face on the marble the terrazzo floor because it was cool, um, and it was difficult but but I was happy I I can't uh, and I, and there was another thing that was very strange because uh, we were quite cloistered. And so I would look out the window and I would see all the cars at night and people, and uh, there was that strange feeling of the, the, the world is out there and, and here I am. But um, as I say, uh, I just knew I was in the right place. Even though you loved the theater, you loved many parts of the outside world, that was still clear to you. Oh, oh yes, uh, because because I had such an absolute idea of, as I said, I thought you just gave up life in some way when you went when you entered the convent. That um, I remember as, as young sisters, we would say we have more fun than people, uh, in the sense that it was just a completely different life. And uh, I guess I threw myself into it, and I, I found that this was where I that this was where I belonged. When you say cloistered, does that mean you never went out in the beginning? There was sort of, uh, you were always in the convent? Yes, we didn't go out. Uh, I didn't go out until I was teaching and until How I accompanied in? students. Or Oh, no, I take that back. I, I went out for some of my studies uh, because uh, we were a group, and actually college professors came in and taught us, um, but there was a point where I had to go out to college. And uh, so we, we did a... It was a wonderful time for studies because we had both our religious studies and our secular studies, and it was it was all the preparation for uh, Vatican II. So we were brought up on Vatican II theology, and uh, we is that what you were studying theology mm -hmm. in college? We studied theology, but I did my secular university at the same time. Majored in English. Actually, I, I majored in humanities when I went on to get. When I went on to get my graduate degree, I had to take more credits because I had something like 12 or 12 credits in practically everything. Uh, but I didn't have enough credits to major in anything, so mm -hmm. then I had to take some extra courses, and I majored in English literature. So for the wh a whole first period of your vocation, you were cloistered except for going to college, essentially. So other than the going to class. Or the doctor. Or the doctor, <laughs> you would stay in. Right. What was th what was your daily life like in the cloister? Our daily life was uh, number one. It was wonderful in the sense that it was really poor. I I was uh, sleeping in the equivalent to an attic, and um, this was in Philadelphia or New York. This was in Philadelphia. Okay. This was in mm -hmm. Philadelphia where I had gone to school. Uh, actually, I entered the convent where I had gone where I had gone to school. And uh, so the, the life was uh, getting up early in the morning, private prayer, then the divine office, then uh, work and study. Um, when I say work, uh, sweeping and cleaning and doing things like that. 
uh, and then study time. And then um, we we were uh, friendship was encouraged in our in our uh, group, and so we were a group of young sisters, which was which was nice. How many were were but you? I think that that was what made me feel that I was that I was so different because they came from such Catholic families, and the vocation to them had been uh, appealing for for a long time. And how old were you when you entered? Eighteen. You were eighteen. Okay, 18. so that's. You said that that was a late vocation. In a no, way? no. I was say that, that was the early. time. That was a normal time for a person to, in my day to to enter the convent. And I'm very glad that I did all my studies as a religious. It made a big difference. Why is that? You just see things differently. You you see them in the light of, of the of eternal values and in the light of what you're tra- going to transmit to somebody else and mm-hmm. uh, so your daily life at that time so you wake up early you're cleaning uh doing some early prayers in the morning some private prayer and then, then the we divine. had instruction in religious life and then so we actually a class about how to be a nun yeah okay <laughs> on a daily basis you would do that on a daily basis as a novice yes Yes. For how many years did those classes continue? Uh, well, we had I had a year as a postulant. I remember I only had one dress as a postulant, and uh, and before I took the habit, I remember cleaning the chapel floor with my skirt uh, because it was completely it had been black. Um, it was a black dress, and it had turned pretty brown by then, mm. and. Uh, so then we took the habit, which uh, was a, a purple habit and a white veil. And uh, during that time, that was the time when we were very seriously studying religious life. But we, for us, studying religious life was studying theology at the same time. Uh, we, we did a lot of reading, a lot of study of the reading the lives of the saints. And... Uh, and then we would, um, then we would have lunch and then uh, a time together. Go out walking, or sometimes we played basketball or something like that, or just sitting and talking and sewing. And uh, then more prayer. Uh, we had adoration uh, in all day, so we usually had our. As young sisters, we had. A period of meditation of three quarters of an hour in the morning. Then we had a period of adoration later in the morning, and then in the afternoon we would have another period of adoration of the Blessed Sacrament and uh, office again, uh, vespers, and then dinner, and then time together, rec- what we called recreation. And then again, office. And uh, one of the things that was very hard was uh, going to bed early. You didn't like that. You're I a night person. I'm a night person. And, uh, <laughs> what was early what, for you? What, then? what was what I managed to do would be the last person to take my shower. So that gave me that held up some of the time. A little extra time <laughs> in the uh, in the afternoon or in the evening. Right. right. So you would. T- what time would you be going to bed on average? Like nine uh, o'clock. The usual it? thing, office evening office would finish perhaps about nine, nine o'clock, and I would manage to, to, do other things and ma- avoid going to bed until about ten o'clock. And mm. 
And of course, we we got up at five o'clock. So, so that was. Uh, that must sounds like an adjustment <laughs> if you're a night person. Five a.m. is uh, well, pretty early. Well, um, myself personally, I'm a night and a morning person, which wow. is a danger. I, oh, so I love the early hours of the morning. You burn the candle at both ends. That's exactly what my mother used to tell me even before I entered the convent. <laughs> so how many hours a day in prayer then, if you consider prayer and, medit- and adoration to be one thing? Well, the, as I say, the morning prayer was three quarters of an hour, and usually got up early, and, and I like to make the way of the cross before prayer. And then we had morning prayer, which was lords and prime at the time. And then the the adoration was like a half an hour uh, in the, later in the morning, and then we had uh, again we had prayer at noon time again the divine office which we sang, and then we spent a lot of time in liturgy, uh, and uh, and we had uh, so we had singing lessons and and le- lessons in in Latin because the office was in Latin at that time. Uh, I had done a lot of Latin already I, I, it, in high school. Do you still speak it? You know, for a long time, I used to speak it to myself to see to make sure I I still remembered it. But uh, and I taught Latin in in high school also. But um, oh, I remember a lot. And of course, I'm still singing in Latin in the in the choir. But um, but I don't. I've I've lost a lot also. Yes. So a few hours a day minimum in prayer and adoration. Oh, between the divine office and and personal prayer and spiritual reading, because we always had spiritual reading. And uh, and that was fun, because when I entered, the, the library really hadn't been, the, the convent library really hadn't been organized yet. So uh, I was just free to read anything I wanted. I read the history of the order, and uh, I read a lot. Uh, so it was Lectio Divina, yes, that be yeah, sort of. Yeah. But was there a direction about what you could read during that time? Would it have to be scripture? Usually, or? you would take the book you wanted to read and show it to your novice mistress. And just say, "Is this okay? Is this, this acceptable? Is this it's not popular mechanics or something." <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And then we would no. Everything I read at that time was was spiritual or theology. And but didn't have to be scripture. It could be. And, uh, actually, we used to eat be. in silence in those days, and we were read to. And um, and that was that you learned a lot. In other words, I remember reading a very kind of very very well written the uh, history of the church we heard, and they so you would have about a half an hour of reading, and then they would read the news, or maybe they read the news first. Uh, that was your contact with the uh, with the newspaper in those days. So it's very interesting that your vocation spans both sides of Vatican II. How, yes. Very. How how did that ch- how did Vatican II change what it meant to be a religious, at least in your congregation? In didn't your change age? anything about what it means to be a religious, but I think what it changed more than anything else was your relationship to what we would call the world, to the outside world. There was a, a very strong uh, separation between the outside and the inside. Uh, when I entered, people came into the convent. Even in my schooling, I felt that I, that we we more or less lived with the sisters because they lived there and we went to school there, and uh, we saw the sisters praying and we, uh, we would go. We had benediction every evening, 
we would go to benediction and uh, and often we went to adoration and when we came into school we would make a visit to the blessed sacrament because because the, there was a the, there was a lovely church and that's one of the things that i miss was the the praying of the divine office was very beautiful in other words we had we wore white cloaks when we were when we were singing the divine office and ceremonies were were very important and very beautiful so that the the our presence in the chapel we do not put any we aren't we're just in our simple habits which are you're talking post vatican too post vatican right so yes. there was a form there was a formality before and the and there were the uh, communities were much bigger also because one of the movements after vatican II in religious life was towards smaller communities closer to people uh, closer to ordinary life that was why people changed the habits the habits became uh, became more like street clothes uh, so I be out amongst the people. I remember one of the sisters we had a we had a very medieval habit really we had a long it was a, a big uh, full sleeves and uh, our habit was you're in Miami for some of this time. <laughs> a purple habit, <laughs> and we we had a we had rosary, a, a big rosary uh, 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 attached to our belt, and uh, we had uh, white veils, and then our our uh, face was uh, encircled, so to speak, by what was called a gamp, which was I don't know, it's hard to describe. It was like a bib, but it went you know, all around your face. Uh, I remember a child reaching, a little boy that I picked up reaching around and discovering that I had a neck because, <laughs> because you didn't see the sisters, the, the sisters' necks. Um, so that um, the habit was, um, was, it was, it was quite medieval, actually. I remember a sister saying when we were changing, she said, I don't mind being medieval, but I don't like being old-fashioned, which mm. was right. when we started putting on ordinary ordinary something that was closer to street something that was closer to street clothes um, but it, it was really more contact uh, with the uh, with people with the world and of course education became more demanding you had more contact with the students more contact with the with the uh, parents you had more obligations as a professor uh, more uh, professional obligations so that all of that uh, also led us into more contact with uh, with more people. Um, so I remember that when I was a when I was a young sister, that uh, I was quite popular with my students, and I th I don't know whether they told their friends in other schools about me or what. But uh, one of the first times when, when I was going out with them, uh, I think it was probably the first time I ever went out with the students. We were going to a Shakespeare play. And so I came down the stairs to to go with them, and of course I still had my full habit on. And they looked at me and they said, "You're going out like that?" <laughs> and and uh, it was a it was a big surprise to them. Uh, so the so there was a formality that you liked, but did you enjoy, or did you th was there fruit in this kind of more let's say life outside the cloister post Vatican II? Did you find that change? Looking back on it, I can say I, I can say that uh, it was a more 
normal, natural life, you might say. But uh, I just went from change to change, and I really, uh, my religious life didn't change. And, You're just uh, serving God. Anyway. Yeah, I just took in, it in my stride. I, I didn't think too much about it. There were there were big discussions about the habit and the veil and and uh, certain things about religious life. We we didn't go out with our families either. Our families came to us. And uh, so you were saying you did, when there was your parents died, you didn't go I to did the funeral. I did not go to their. Uh, my was that hard? To not go to your family's funeral or to your mother and Do you father? know, uh, you were, as I said, you just took it in your stride as part of your vocation. You'll meet him in heaven. But what was hard for me was that, for instance, when I was very, very close to my grandfather. Uh, and I dreamed sometimes that my fa- grandfather died. And then when my grandfather died and I didn't go to his funeral, I didn't experience that kind of finality. So that there were some times when I would, I would wonder, is my grandfather alive or dead? <laughs> <laughs> and so that that finality that comes with uh, with a, a funeral and the mourning and the talking to other people be about their lives and so forth, uh, you didn't have. So there, so that that was a uh, that was the strange impression I remember. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so you're, um, you also at some point became the mother superior, I guess, of the entire order. You were the, um, there's 1,500 people in the, in your, 1,500 sisters in the religious of the Assumption. And for a 25 year period, you were the, what are the, what's the name of the title? I was Mother uh, General? Or? Yes, I was Mother General for 12 years. Um, the in in the religious life we have what we call chapters every six years, and the uh, superiors, that is the the leaders uh, in the in, in the congregation on an international level, are elected at that time. So I went to uh, I went to a general chapter um, when I was about 30 years old and I was elected counselor, which was a little unusual. I was, I was rather young for that. And so counselor, uh, there, the superior general has four counselors and I was elected one of those counselors and I spent 12 years as counselor. And then I thought, well, you know, now, now I finished my time as general counselor. And you were in Paris during this time? And I lived in Paris and traveled around the congregation uh, visiting the various communities in the different countries, and giving sessions uh, in in Paris because we had a lot of international sessions, and uh, and then I thought, well, now is the time to go back to the United States. But what I didn't realize was, after twelve years, I was very well known in the congregation, and that was, I think, how I was elected Superior General, and I was Does Superior a surprise General. To you? For twelve years, yes. Was that how was that? Was that a? I mean, because, in a way, at least the beginning of your formation was you're cloistered. You're in a small group of people, and then gradually, God is bringing you to this place where now you're the not. I mean, you're the not the boss. What's the best way to put it? You're the leader. Let's say of fifty. Was there fifteen hundred sisters, or maybe I more at that point? No, I guess it was really about the same same number, and maybe we're not as many as fifteen hundred right now. Um, but um, so I, I would say with it because after Vatican II, as as there most people know who know the history of the Church, there was a big hemorrhage among uh, priests and religious. And uh, I d- we didn't lose that many sisters. I think our prayer life was responsible for that. 
But uh, yes, sisters did leave the congregation, and there was a period when there weren't vocations. What was that part of your vocation like to be the you know to sort of be in the, I guess in a certain sense the spotlight in, in at least within the organization because you're within the order you're the one that I mean you you're making it, it, decisions it for the whole you're making financial decisions you're making decisions about the real estate that the order owns and well I guess I had practice as counselor. And uh, the superior general before me had the difficult time after, after Vatican II, when everything seemed to be up for grabs. When, when the habit, the, the the re- the theology of the religious life, even theology within the church, uh, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament was questioned. Uh, authority was uh, there was great authority. Uh, crisis in the church, and uh, she really had to navigate those years. Um, for me, by the time I became superior general, it was um, a return, what the Vatican II had asked of religious was a return to their sources, uh, to their original foundation, what they were founded for, and bringing that into the 20th century and 21st century. So that was your di- that was your and mandate. That, that was I, what I felt was my mandate was showing how the religious life was basically the same, uh, that our our call and our and our total gift of self was the same, but uh, it was lived out in different circumstances and in different uh, different situations. One of the one of the um, big points was uniformity had been the rule in most religious orders. The habit was the same no matter where you were. Uh, You mentioned Miami. We were wearing woolen habits in Miami uh, when it it was just... Too hot to do that. So, so, so hot. Well, of course, now the habit is is cotton. But um, everything was the same. Uh, so uniformity was what made the unity in the uh, in the congregation, and in an international congregation like mine, it was a time of enculturation of the faith, where uh, enculturation of the faith meant in a in a culture discovering those things that were corresponded with the gospel, the the good traits of a culture, and contesting those that were not in conformity with the gospel. And uh, and so it was the same thing with religious life. It was entering into the culture and its values uh, insofar as they were uh, compatible with the, with the gospel and even putting those values, uh, stressing those values, and at the same time contesting those things that were not. So we were one of the few congregations uh, at the time. I think that I think perhaps there are more now, but uh, we had we wear a habit. We kept the habit, but at the same time, the habit was different in different cultures, corresponding to the dress uh, of the the people and uh, women in that country. Uh, so that we had any number of different habits, always purple, which has always distinguished our congregation. I found myself in Egypt uh, and someone walking up and t- up to me and saying, oh, the assumption, because they, they recognized, the the, recognized the purple, and here in Paris I would be in the street and someone would stop me and say, oh, the assumption, because of our purple habit. But uh, 
even today, not all of the habits are are purple. Usually, the the dress habit is, but mm. um, so that in, the enculturation was a big thing, and and uh, ex but expressing religious life and our writings of our founders and our typical uh, contemplative and active life in terms of culture, of modern culture, was what I th felt fell to me. And Sister, you and I met um, through the uh, Ignatian Exercises, which is part of your charism of teaching in, the, uh, in Philadelphia. I'm curious, what, is, what attracted you to that, and why do you think that something like the Ignatian Spiritual Exercises are important uh, for people, for lay people and religious and all? It's interesting that you ask that. Because the the exercises I've been giving the exercises for about forty years, and uh, the exercises of Saint Ignatius, uh, my my attitude toward them is that they really introduce people to a an, a spiritual experience and a life with Christ, and it's getting the the uh, exercises help us to know ourselves deeply to know our calling our particular calling uh, as I would say almost as a human being and as a member of the the church uh, and when I say church I really mean Christian church because a lot of Protestants come to make the exercises um, so that it is really a, a, a school of prayer and of the spiritual life uh, and my idea was to take practicing Christians and make them friends of uh, and apostles uh, with Christ. Um, but our spirituality is not Jesuit. Interesting. Uh, so it's Augustinian, right? Our spirituality is Augustinian. How would you distinguish the two? Um, well, the first of all, St. Ignatius, when he founded the Jesuits, he wanted to get rid of everything that was monastic uh, and yet keep what was necessary for a deep spiritual life. When our founders, uh, Mary Eugenie, St. Mary Eugenie, founded the congregation, she wanted to keep as much of the monastic as she could mm. and give up only what was an obstacle to the apostolic life. So that's a, a very big difference. Um, and the monastic life, I would say that the, um, the contemplative life is really wanting to be in the presence of God, um, wanting to be in... Con in, in uh, aware of the presence of God and aware of the the spiritual dimension of existence uh, at all times. Uh, but um, the at attraction that St. Ignatius uh, emphasizes the will very much, which of course is important, uh, the choices that you make and why you make them and the choices that God is calling you to make. Uh, but the but the uh, contemplative life and the Augustinian way is more by attraction, more by being drawn by the love of God. So that uh, the famous, uh, there are two famous quotations of Augustine, I think, that describe his spirituality. Uh, one of them is, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will find no rest until they rest in thee. So your, your focus is always on, on God. And the uh, another one is love and do what you will. In other words, if you love God, you will always choose those things that are good. So do what you will then. And another one of uh, of Augustine is that there are two cities 
One is a city uh, where humans choose love themselves so much that they forget about God, and the other is they love God so much that they forget about themselves. And uh, so the dynamic, I would say, is is different. Mm. Uh, a dynamic of attraction and uh, of uh, always striving to love more. And uh, also another, another trait, uh, you know, these are very subtle differences. We're talking about spiritualities because the gospel life and the Christian life is the same for everybody and, and uh, the, the attraction of love is for everybody and the, and the importance of what we do with our, our wills is uh, important. But Ignatius uh, saw people very, very involved in the, in, in the affairs of the world and with people and, and time element and so forth. Uh, and uh, the monastic life is a kind of total lifestyle where where you're very much in contact with God and the things of God all the time. So that made a, a difference. Uh, another difference um, is that when you make the exercises, the uh, the emphasis is on Jesus poor and humble, and none of the the exercises really take you to what... Uh, what uh, Augustine would call the the total Christ. It's centered on the uh, the exercises are centered on the human life in this world of Jesus and how he lived it. And the um, Augustinian is Jesus as mediator to God, uh, the, our way to God, and it's the cosmic Christ, the Lord of history. And uh, they're just different emphasis mm. but um, so I love the exercises as exercises mm. I like to make the exercises because they uh, the emphasis and and even in our spirituality there are um, there are traits you might say of, uh, of Ignatius like the particular examine where you're where you're trying to be aware of what you're doing with your life and the decisions that that you're making every, all day and where you're encountering Christ in the busyness of life. Um, uh, and the particular examine where you are striving to grow in virtue because um, that was one of the biggest changes I noticed uh, after Vatican II was people stopped talking about virtue and they started talking about values. Values are in your head. They're the things that you consider, consider important uh, and uh, Virtue is what you do. Uh, in other words, you you practice virtue. You, if you want to be a patient person, you practice acts of virtue until you become a patient person. But to ha just have value as a patient uh, uh, of patience, it doesn't mean you're Without doing, action, doing right? anything do it, right. to, sure. to acquire it. Well, we're coming to the end, sister. Um, we got to get to get you uh, to lunch. But maybe just one last thing to two last questions that are hopefully pretty short and then we can end in a prayer the first one would be if somebody is struggling in their life listening to this and they they're suffering quite a bit and they don't know where to turn do you have any advice from your long experience in the spiritual life um what what they could do what kind of suffering are you talking any about? Just uh, any kind of suffering, just the suffer, the difficult, the cross of 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 existence, the difficulty of the human of human life, just suffering, pure and simple. I would say that uh, 
the first, you know, the one of the things in the Catholic Church is that you see the the crucifix a lot. Uh, in Protestant churches, you will see the cross uh, of the, and so the the cross of the resurrection is the cross of victory, but the crucifix is the suffering Christ, and uh, Christ is with you in any suffering. I think that is there is no suffering where you do not find the presence of Christ and the and the compassion uh, of His heart and the mm. that understanding that that there is someone who knows what you are going through and who is accompanying you in this difficult mm. time and who will bring you to the victory uh, of the cross, who will bring you to peace uh, and to love. Mm, amen. And so turn to him. I think uh, contemplating Christ and, and letting him, letting him uh, into your suffering. Mm, amen. And the last question would be, if somebody is discerning a vocation or is confused about their vocation, um, young or older, make the exercise. <laughs> actually, when when uh, Ignatius, who spent his whole life perfecting the exercises, and uh, for me, th the exercises are almost like magic. Uh, I just follow the the lead of Saint uh, of Saint Ignatius, and I just watch what happens. Um, but uh, when he when he invented the exercises, it was to help people to see what God was asking of them individually. Uh, what that was their, the point. What their particular grace was, what their particular calling was. And so just as a quick promotional note, there will be the exercises <laughs> with Sister Claire leading, <laughs> and it's available on Zoom. So how would they get in touch with you in order to uh, potentially do the exercises with you? Well, uh, let me see. Assuming they're I not listening to this five years in advance. Yes. <laughs> um, wait a minute. Um, For this year. Spiritual exercises, Ignatius. It's uh, S-E-I assumption at Gmail is the, uh, and the, well, the other is the telephone number, so that's. Okay, uh, so we'll leave the, just the email just so we don't get your, your phone blowing <laughs> up <laughs> with people from all over the world who are going to listen potentially, God's willing. Okay, sister, thank you so much. Um, I wanted, I know we're a little bit running over and I, I wanted to thank you personally because you've been of great help to me. You and I speak uh, on a, on a regular basis and my journey into the church is new and uh, you've been a great help to me. And so I really, I thank you for being in my life and for what you've done for me. And it's been really wonderful. Uh, your guidance has been uh, especially valuable in the last <laughs> period when I'm going through some, some particular personal crosses. And the so wonderful thing is you never accompany anyone without uh, receiving graces and knowledge yourself. Amen. So, Sister, would you end us in prayer and then we can go grab some, uh, some lunch? What do you think? And call upon the Holy Spirit and ask the, the Holy Spirit to uh, make um, the presence of the Spirit known within your heart, within your life, and ask the Spirit to illumine, to console, to accompany, and to teach us uh, how to love. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, sister.